for a steady startup, you really, Isabella was saying before, as much stuff in front as possible. So try to do it right so you don't have to do it again. Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Across the globe, visionaries and innovators are building the future of medical devices, devices that redefine boundaries, extend possibilities, and improve the quality of life for millions of people. But every innovation encounters obstacles, regulatory complexities, data management hurdles, evolving quality standards. Transitioning from prototype to the patient is filled with challenges. There are a multitude of regulations and requirements that can get in the way. Many teams have inherited or relied on legacy tools, outdated systems, and manual processes that can move the product lifecycle backward rather than forward, turning potential medical breakthroughs into nothing more than long-held ideals that just couldn't quite make it. Time is of the essence, and with every delay in getting to market, the potential to change real lives for the better gets diminished. And this is where Greenlight Guru can help. Our suite of purpose-built solutions helps companies modernize quality management, streamline design and development, improve clinical trial operations, and keep up with industry trends and changing regulations. Ultimately, getting high-quality medical devices to market faster and keeping them there. We help companies pivot from pitfalls to progress, moving devices forward, not backward. Over a 1,000 medtech innovators trust Greenlight Guru to help them move faster, get more efficient, reduce risk, and ensure quality, so that in every innovation, every device reaches its full potential, improving lives around the world and setting new standards in healthcare. Greenlight Guru, moving medtech forward. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols. I am the host of today's podcast, and I hope I got my name right because this is not take one. That's okay. We hit me up sometime if you ever want to talk about take one. Today with me is Samantha Pickett, who is the associate director at Proxima Clinical Research. As well, to help support the conversation is Isabella Schmidt, who is the vice president of life science solutions at Proxima Clinical Research. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about site selection and diversity planning for your clinical investigations. Uh, but maybe before we get into the conversation, we can give a, give a little bit of background on where you're coming, maybe an origin story. Samantha, would you want to kick us off? Sure. I started in clinical research about seven years ago. Uh, I started entry level as a CTA and I was a CTA for a few years. Um, I was promoted to in-house CRA at that same institution and we went under an acquisition. Um, so I changed institutions at that point to a site startup specialist. And then I moved into a management position of the CTA team. And after that is when I moved to Proxima as manager of study startup. And just recently I was promoted to associate director of study startup. So All right. held a few different positions. In well, industry. congratulations. That, I'm Thank sure you. that sounds like you have a pretty uh, a great experience all the way through from the beginning to to managing. So that sounds re really good. Maybe we can get into some of that. Um, but pass the mic to Isabella if you want to talk a little bit about where you are and maybe where you're going. 
Yeah. So um, I will try to make this brief. I think a lot of people know me from the regulatory affairs side. So was director of regulatory affairs at Proxima, as you may have heard Etienne said, a different title. Um, so what a lot of people don't know is that I actually started off in clinical. Um, so when I started in industry, I was also a CTA and then I was CRA and then I did regulatory clinical and then I worked on a bunch of biotech NDA stuff. And then I moved into regulatory quality and clinical strategy for med devices. And then I landed at Proxima, where it's actually in clinical first. And then I built up the regulatory department at Proxima. And so now I have an expanded scope to include all of Proxima services. Fantastic. And we were kind of joking about this before we started recording, but just how you have to step jump in your career to really have a, a you know expand what you're doing. I'm always impressed when people are able to do that. It's like unlocking parts of your brain. So maybe after you're in the role for a few months, just be intentional and, and thoughtful as you go through this. And you can give me a little bit of advice on how you're going through that because it's always interesting to see how people I grow. Think- The biggest thing for me is to build the people underneath you. So underneath being a relative term, I don't like like the hierarchy talk, but you build up the team and then they take on responsibilities and you empower them and then they grow and then you're able to level up too. So it's a bunch of different leveling up. Okay. No, that's a really good answer and unprompted too. So that's very cool. I love that you've already been thinking about this. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about site selection and, uh, I maybe have a good place to start would be the protocol. Um, or is that a good place to start? Maybe I'll just just ask that question. What is if I'm a if I'm a medical device uh, company who's thinking about selecting a site, what is the right place to start? No, that's the perfect place to start is is the protocol because that's the foundation. That's the source of information for the sites and the the rule book for how the clinical trial is run right so you want to make sure that you have a well-written and complete protocol when you start out that's the first impression that you're giving to the clinical investigators when they look at your trial when they decide do i want to participate in this or do i not want to participate in this if your protocol isn't done they're probably not going to be interested we send out feasibility surveys all the time to sites and you know, we can, we send a little blurb about what the protocol is about and, you know, it can take a really long time for them to complete a feasibility questionnaire because they don't want to do that until they've seen a full protocol or they can just immediately say they're not interested because, you know, they, they don't know immediately what they're getting into and it's not the first thing on their mind. So that's, that is a great place to start. Okay. So, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what it means to, to, have a well-written protocol, but I'm curious, I want to ask one layer deeper, what you just said, did you call it a feasibility or it it sounded almost like an executive summary that you would send out? What, can you go a little more detail? Yeah. So a feasibility questionnaire, um, you know, once we start working with a sponsor, that's part of our process of how we select the sites is we kind of send a questionnaire to see if they're, you know, generally suited for the study before they have a qualification visit, just to gauge their interest. Are they remotely interested? Are they seeing, you know, the patient population? Um, Do they have the general equipment it takes, you know, kinds of things like that to see if, you know, like I said, in general, if they would be a good candidate to run the trial at their institution. Okay. So this, this question that we're talking about, it's kind of a two-way questionnaire. It sounds like you're evaluating them based on the answers, but they're also evaluating you. I would, is that safe to say? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
you know, we want to make sure we're working with someone that has experience in the trial, but we also want to make sure that our trials are a good fit for their institution. If, you know, if we've got a, you know, a device trial that's a diagnostic for this one thing, we we don't want to be at another institution that's running a device trial for the same thing because it's, you know, competing and we'd be competing for patients and things like that. So it's got to be a good fit both ways. Like, you know, like every relationship, like the relationship with the sponsor and the CRO and the relationship with the sites and vice versa. That makes sense. And I usually, I tend, well, I tend to latch on to something that I think, Hey, that's a great idea. And I love this, uh, this thought, but maybe I, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves because and, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong. Is this an output of the actual uh, protocol? Does it make sense to? I mean, I'm just going to go go through this, and you tell me where I'm right or wrong. It seems like it would make sense to write the protocol, and this questionnaire would come later based on the content of the protocol. Is that accurate? Yes, absolutely. So we develop that questionnaire essentially from the pieces of the protocol that we need. The patient population, you know, um, are they are they able to run this trial at their institution? And we we can't ask them those questions if the protocol is not complete yeah. and we know what we need to run the trial. So having that complete protocol is the, the very first step in okay. selection. So we have the rules of the game, basically. Well, and if we don't have a protocol, we kind of don't even know what sites to reach out to, right? That's so true. Like we, yeah. We would need to know, hey, this is an indication. This what this is what the indication is. This is kind of what we're doing. So we would need a protocol. And I guess, like you're saying, Sam, if we don't have a protocol, it's also hard for us to know when to begin to reach out to the sites because we don't want to reach out to them a year before the study is actually going to happen because then it's just a waste of our time, a waste of the site's time. So having that protocol, um, at least, is a first step to being serious about the trial, right? Yeah. Not just saying, oh, I'm going to do this trial at some point in some indication. Yeah, that makes exactly. Sense. Okay. So I'm sure some listeners are saying, okay, Etienne, just get to the actual question of what we need to know. So the actual protocol, what, when you see, you've probably seen a lot of these different protocols. When you say a well-written complete protocol, what's the difference in that? And what you might say is uh, that one's not well-written. What, what are the, what are the differences and or common pitfalls you see people getting into with this? Regulatory, would you like to take that question? <laughs> um, that's a really big question, Etienne. Um, so let's talk about it. Um, one is you really want to design your protocol to address the patient population and the intended use that you're trying to, to get a labeling claim for, right? So you need to be intentional about uh, who is going to be using the device, how it's going to be used in that patient population. Um, what your study objectives are, what your endpoints are going to be. Um, and then you also want to make sure that you have comprehensive schedule of assessments. So even at the very early stages, um, sometimes we'll do what's called a protocol synopsis where you're basically outlining um, the, the high level things, how many patients there are, um, what are your objectives, how many sites you think you're going to need, um, Sometimes maybe you have ideas of some sites. Uh, you're obviously the title of the, the protocol um, and and some of the, the analysis that's going to be planned. Another good thing is to do the schedule of events or the schedule of assessments, which is basically all of the activities that are going to happen during that clinical trial. 
And that's really important for like Sam to know kind of what facilities does the site need, um, but also for like budgeting of the clinical trial, because depending on how many assessments there are, um, that could, you know, tend itself to more what we call case report forms, which is probably the data management discussion that we're talking about earlier, um, um, which would also be um, indicative of how much monitoring, which is another discussion in and of itself, is necessary. So it also has a lot to do with the budget, but and then also the site. So how much time does the site need to allocate to this study, um, which also has to do with site selection. So I'll pass it back to you, Sam. Yeah, the um, the budgeting piece for the sites is really important. Um, that negotiation can take a long time. There can be a lot of back and forth if things aren't clear. What standard of care? What is required per the protocol? What kind of information are we just going to obtain if you happen to have it as an institution, but we're not going to make you run this test as part of the protocol? Um, so having that well-written protocol, again, having that schedule of assessments of all those activities is a really important piece of how quickly things can move with a site when um, when you're getting them started because of because of those different types of discussions. Okay. And I think one thing that she said right there was like um, what we're going to make you do versus what you're just going to maybe do anyway. And, oh, can we collect that or can we not? We're not going to make you do it. I think understanding the level of importance of those things is important um, because you need to understand the analysis and what what data elements are important for you because you do want to enforce those things are collected, right? So even if it's not part of what they would routinely do, you probably, if it's really important to get to your endpoint and your study objectives, you really want to be able to collect that data. And so when we talk about um, selecting sites, we want to make sure that we're selecting sites who are willing to do that or capable of doing. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. And I appreciate you all letting me kind of anchor to this, you know, the protocol. Um, when I know if we zoom out, the 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 broader discussion about selecting a site is, you know, maybe a little bit different, but it starts somewhere. So I like to I like to start maybe where a company would start. Okay. So now that we've let's say we've got our well-written protocol, what's the next step in selecting a site? Um, is it the questionnaire? Is it is it evaluating sites? What's next? Yeah, so we we always want to come together with a sponsor if they already have relationships with sites that you know they've had in mind, or we as a CRO kind of evaluate our bank of sites that we've worked with to see if any of those would be a good fit and recommend them. But either way, whether we have to find new sites or use an existing relationship, we send out feasibility questionnaires to see who who's able and who is a good fit for the site. Um, well, first, let me back up. We negotiate yeah. non-disclosure agreements. That is clinical trials 101. Um, negotiate that. And then we can do the feasibility questionnaire, send them the final protocol, and they can, the final protocol allows them to give us the most accurate information because they have those details of what needs to go on in the trial. So they can reply to the feasibility questionnaire more accurately. And then if a site if it seems like it'll be a good fit, then they'll move on to a site qualification visit, which is kind of what we're kind of what we're doing here. It's just like a monitoring visit to see if to to be more detailed about the things, to talk with the principal principal investigator and see, you know, do they have enough staff 
to run the trial, which is extremely important. Um, if they don't, you know, if they don't have a, a study coordinator at the time, that trial is not going to move very fast because the PI can't do everything on their own. They need a study coordinator helping them, you know, screen for patients and things like this. Um, and also, you know, see if that site is going to provide enough patient diversity, which um, I think Isabella wants to talk a little bit more about that because it's becoming it. <laughs> it's becoming more and more um, important in right. clinical trials. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I can add about the diversity, but also just to note. NDAs are important in clinical trials, but they're important in everything. Don't talk to anybody without having an NDA. Don't share any confidential information. Um, So the diversity. Okay. So diversity in clinical trials is important. And this is, um, you know, tying into the site selection conversation too, and the protocol um, conversation, because you need to understand um, what the diversity is expected for your product and for your patient population. Right. So you can kind of do that in different ways. Um, the best way to go about it is if you can get epidemiologic um, information about the disease state and the different minority groups, um, you know, whether it's race, um, sex, gender, socioeconomic status, all of that about that particular indication, particular space. That's the best case scenario. Now, a lot of the times that information is not available. Um, and so then what you typically default to is uh, rep- what's the representation of the general population of the United States, if you're in the United States or wherever it is that you may be, um, and kind of making sure that you're able to have representative numbers of the patient population, whether that's the disease state or the United States within your study. Um, obviously this is because historically a lot of clinical trials were not tested in a representative patient population. Um, mostly white men were in clinical trials. And so the, the tests were not necessarily applicable, um, to women, to, um, Americans, Hispanics, et cetera. And so now we want to make sure that any devices and drugs, um, are truly, able to be efficacious and safe in the real, you know, the full um, patient population. And so when we think about site selection for that, we want to make sure that we're going to sites that um, either have a good uh, socioeconomic, racial, ethnic distribution. Um, So they may be in, you know, cultural hotspots like Houston or Chicago, place Los Angeles, big cities like that. Um, Or you're going to locations where you have um, large numbers of certain minority groups to kind of balance it out within the entire study. Um, And there are lots of different, you know, besides site selection, there's things that you can do during the management of a clinical trial to kind of maintain that you're actually getting that good distribution within um, the patient population. That's very deep and detailed. Um, And we probably don't want to go into the nitty gritty of that, but it's, you know, stratification and, and paying attention to the enrollment and all of that within the sites um, and just keeping a close eye on that. And so what you'll want to do is kind of plan what your diversity needs to look like at the front end of the clinical trial and how you're going to ensure that that diversity, um, the diversity, what's the word I'm looking for, requirement is met 
and then how you're going to monitor that throughout the trial and any sort of risk mitigations that you're going to be putting in place to ensure that you're able to get that truly representative patient. That makes sense. And I know the FDA put out a guidance on uh, enhancing the diversity of clinical trial populations. I think it was 2020. I feel like there was something more recent. Is there, has there been something more recent or am I mistaken? Draft guidance that came out recently. It's very short, honestly. um, And it's just kind of basically further talking about how to enhance diversification and, and that they're putting more of an effort to this. And, um, and so they're really looking more into the diversity planning to kind of address what the historic challenges were with seeing equal representation. Okay. I know there's a lot of different aspects. I do want to ask one little, one more question around the diversity and and choosing your site. Uh, So you mentioned Houston, a few other uh, geographical uh, diverse uh, places within the United States. What are your thoughts about Maybe I'm a U.S. company, but I want to go uh, maybe for economical reasons. Maybe I'll go somewhere else. I know historically people might have tried to release or do first in human overseas and um, in, in Europe. Uh, a, a lot of companies now are talking about maybe Latin America. What are the pros and cons of some of the site selection on a more global, uh, looking at it globally? What are your thoughts? Things can definitely get um, a little more hairy because you know Europe has um, different regulations to follow. So if you're kind of running dual in the US and Europe, it can get a little more difficult, um, you know, because the European sites are held to different standards than the American sites are. Um, so we try, you know, our our best to to get the diversity within America. That is part of the very beginning of study startup is that's one of the things we look at is we are trying, like Isabella said, to address the diversity up front. So we we've got the epidemiology of, you know, the United States for the disease. And then we also have um, kind of where the minority groups are more you know concentrated and mapped out. So we definitely try to hit, you know, Florida and Texas for um Hispanic population, um, Southern California, you know, the Pacific Northwest, New York, and then, you know, just different hotspots around the country um, that have those pockets of more diverse populations. Okay. Okay. Now that makes sense. Um, So if, if we go back to the conversation about we're, we're interviewing the um the 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 site and we're talking to them about different things one of the things you mentioned was that clinical manager so i'm curious a little bit about what this actually happens on a a tactical level you said you go to the site have that interview with these different people how do you how do you ascertain whether or not they have um the bandwidth um the correct equipment so forth um competing studies even i know you mentioned um Mm -hmm. how do do you go through and ensure that all of that is uh is going to work out that's all part of that site qualification visit process. We're talking to the PI, the person that's going to be responsible for all the things on the trial, who's signing their name saying, you know, these these things are accurate. So, you know, we talk to them like, are they, does this institution have other competing trials? Like, do they specifically have, you know, do they have a coordinator? Do they have a backup coordinator in case that person gets sick or, you know, are they um, having a lot of staff turnover? Do they specifically have X, Y, and Z from the protocol? We have um, a study we're running right now. They specifically needed a negative 80 degree freezer 
So we, you know, when we're talking to the site, do you have one? (laughs) If you don't have one, do you like, are you open to one being rented for you? Do you have space to put it? Do you, you know, all of these things you try to take as much into account upfront as possible. Once you get past that feasibility, like, oh, are you interested? Could this potentially be a good fit? That that site qualification visit is really getting down to the nitty gritty of, are are we serious? You know, are we serious about this? Are we going to move forward? Um, do you have all the things that you need to run this trial successfully? If you don't have them, how can we get them to you? Or do you not have enough of the things that we should just stop here and okay. move on to another site? I want to add something. Site selection is a critically important part of the clinical trial. Um, and I think that it may not be emphasized enough. A lot of times what we'll see with startups is that they will have sites that they have pre-existing relationships with and want to use those sites in their clinical trials. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, It's really good for these sites to have these relationships with these docs or these KOLs, um, but that relationship doesn't necessarily mean that they're a good fit for the particular clinical trial. Um, So what what happens is because they have these relationships, they want to lean on the the relationship a whole lot to get the trial to run smoothly. But um, there are a number of different factors that go into site selection for a clinical trial um, that Sam has been mentioning. And sometimes the sites don't have the support that they need. So maybe they don't have the research staff um, that's trained in that area, or maybe they don't have research staff at all, and maybe they don't have the patient population, right? So they may have some patients, but they may not have enough to really hit the enrollment criteria for the trial. And so um, it's really great to have those relationships, but I wouldn't default say just because you have the relationship that that necessarily means that that physician is a good fit for a PI for a clinical trial or that that site is a good fit for the clinical trial. Um, And so just be, you know, I think going through the site selection process and not just defaulting to having sites that you already know be a part of your study is important. Um, and, And in addition on that, I think folks need to remember that when you select sites, the sites are working for you. You're paying the sites to do the study, right? So that means the sites are going to need to be managed, right? Just like you would with any employee, any team, you want to manage, make sure that they're doing things correctly, that you're interviewing them. They're like, that's what the the site qualification visit and the feasibility questionnaire and everything is. You can think of it like an application process, right? Like, do they like going through your application process? Do you like what their application says? Are you going to take them on um, an interview, right? And so that's what the site qualification visit is. Um, you want to make sure that it's a good fit and that they are um, a good fit for the study, a good, f- and that they continue to be a good fit throughout the trial. So it's not we selected them and then we're we're done monitoring them. That's all the clinical monitoring stuff. That's you know keeping track of how everything's going, really reassessing the site as the study progresses um, and, you know, making changes or addressing things as it goes along. But the first step is really making sure that you got that good fit in the door the same way you would with like any hiring process, right? Because if you got a good fit in the door, then hopefully you don't have a whole bunch of issues later down the line that you need to address. And what does that look like? The reassessment, do do you actually have an employee go out and look at that? Or do you recommend um, during the study? You want to talk about that soon? Yeah, um, we do, um, you know, injury monitoring visit. So going on site, they can um, 
you know, make sure that they're keeping their equipment up to date and making sure, you know, they that's what an IMB is, is for the CRAs to double check things and make sure that the site is running things per protocol the way it's supposed to be run. And if they're not, then, you know, if an offense is serious enough, then they can be closed down. And like Isabella said, you know, finding sites that are working properly, that are enrolling patients, that's a huge deal. I've seen so many sites just closed because they're not enrolling the patients that they said they would, or they thought they would because the sponsor, they're still paying them money to search for these patients. But if they're not producing patients and the sponsor is essentially just wasting money. So, you know, they'll close down a site for low enrollment as well. Um, And to piggyback on what Isabella was saying about, you know, sponsors assuming or defaulting to using those relationships they already have i mean i'm sure we've both seen it you know go south you're when you choose a site like you're going on a journey with this site and if they're being um you know difficult in the beginning if they're not giving you um things on time like they said they would you know do you do you want to deal with that for the entire rest of your study because you know it's the protocol is the site's first impression of the sponsor, but then, you know, the sponsor and the CRO also take their first impressions to account as well. If a site's difficult up front, you can just assume they're going to be difficult the entire time. And do you want to take that on? Yeah. Yeah. And I would add to that, um, Samantha mentioned the the competition earlier too, um, as a big factor when you're selecting sites. Because... Well, first of all, you want to know not only do they have competitive studies, but how many studies are they assigned? Like, is the coordinator assigned, or how many studies does the site have? Do they have time to run your study? Yeah, because the resourcing um, is a strain for sites, as it is for everything now, right? So, we've had a lot of, um, we've seen strains in resourcing across industry, across FDA, across sites, across everything, right? So, the great resignation happened. Now we're having a lot of people getting laid off all over the place. So there's just resourcing issues across the board, I think, and that also impacts sites. And so you want to make sure that they don't have too many studies for the staff to support them, that they do have the time, like Samantha said, um, because a lot of it, you know, not only for your study, but for the staff as well, right? Because they'll get overwhelmed with having too much to do. Um, and so you'll see that that there have so many studies that they're overwhelmed. And if they're overwhelmed, that's not a good situation for anybody. Well, even if they're trying to give you the time, right? Even if they're going for giving you the time, um, that's a, a recipe for mistakes to be made for oversight. Um, so you really want to take a look at how many sites, how many sites, how many studies does the site have? Are they competitive? Because um, that's also a, a a place where you'd have enrollment potential issues if they're competing for one, you know, that's, you know, multiple studies that they're trying to target the same indication. Um, But also a place where they could, if they're overwhelmed, be making mistakes, confusing things between the similar studies. Um, So you just want to be mindful of all of those things when you're selecting a site. And that, again, goes to the fact that you might have this KOL, but he may have competing studies. So you don't necessarily always just go to the sites that you know. That's a that's a good point that you made. I mean, even if it's not competing, if it's a similar study, you're dealing with human beings who may make this. Well, this is the same thing as I'm doing over there, so this is probably what they want. You know, I can see the that human cognitive error uh, taking place at, at times. So, if I were to shift gears a little bit, 
um, earlier this year, we did a survey of, I think it was 613 medtech professionals to talk about challenges with the industry and things that people are facing for 2023. And maybe I'll put that uh, a link in the show notes to that study if, if anyone's interested in looking a little bit more closely at that. But one of the things that was mentioned was the uh, disparity between what we think or, or how long we think it will take to get to market and uh, how long it actually takes and timelines. We are so bad in this industry at estimating our timelines. So I'll get to the point on the question I want to ask, and that is, what is uh, what is what are one of the biggest impactors of timelines? Because I know as a project manager, I remember the study was one of the things that felt like was completely out of my control. And so I was guessing or taking a stab in the dark. What are some things that impact timelines um, when it comes to these clinical investigations? Oh, timelines, the ever changing, right? Um, it's there's so many moving pieces in a trial and ever, timelines are they're targets, right? There, nothing is written in stone. Anything can happen. Sometimes anything that can go wrong does go wrong. Um, and we're, like you said, we're all human beings, right? So we are kind of, there's room for error and we're kind of at the mercy of, you know, process and guidelines and things like that. Um, I think it's really, really important for sponsors to go into it with realistic expectations of timelines. Um, sometimes, you know, we get sponsors and they're like, you know, we want first patient in by March and it's January. And we're just like, where, where'd you come up with that? You know, oh, we, we just want first patient by March. Well, like there's processes we have to, you know, follow. There's the sites have their processes that they have to follow. Um, it's always, you know, nice and, you know, you get the clout for having this large big name institution participating in your study. But with that large big name institution, they are a large big name institution because they're a well-oiled machine. They have their processes that they go by. They probably have a local IRB that they use and they probably have separate budget and contract committees and they, you know, things just take more time. It could be a linear process instead of a parallel process and it can just take longer and longer um to get things started at that institution and there have been a few acronyms i i apologize for not getting this clarified earlier but so irb internal review board i know there was another one imb or ima i may be misremembering that it doesn't matter we'll we'll look at it later but anyway <laughs> i'll try to i'll try to catch the the acronym so the local irb that you mentioned so what are some different options when it comes to to, to selecting a site and utilizing an IRB, kind of enlighten me there if you could. Yeah, so there's local IRBs and central IRBs. Um, central IRB is typically faster. Um, a local IRB can be, you know, this one institution has their own IRB or this group of institutions have their own, you know, review board. That they go through, which would be um, and, essential for that group. Is that right, or, or no? Um, sort of. It, it, the language can get a little confusing. A central, um, IRB would be for like a multi-center study. Um, and then each site can some groups or sites have agreements with the central IRB. Yes, we'll use you, you guys. You know, if somebody if a trial wants to use you, we'll use you. Or yes we'll use a central IRB if X, Y, and Z criteria are met or no, we just use our own local IRB. So we make sure that everything 
is going the way we want it to. Um, and the purpose of the IRB is, you know, protecting patients to make sure that everything is um, patients are aware of what's going on in the trial, what, you know, risks and benefits and just to protect their privacy and ev everything about the IRB is patient focused. Um, so the IRBs, like they kind of all have the same standards. Local IRBs can have a little more stricter standards. They can have specific language that they want used um, that's presented to patients. Um, and all those things can kind of take a little more time. The central IRB, um, if a site uses them, when just say you have six sites on a trial that are using the central IRB and there's a protocol amendment. You submit that protocol amendment with any other additional updates to the central IRB. And when it's approved, it just gets approved automatically for those six sites. So it's much faster than those six sites having to submit to their own local IRBs. And then we have to wait for six different time points to get approval for the central IRB. It's kind of all approved in, in one go. And then we can just move forward a lot faster. Okay. That makes sense. And uh, so how do you, well, what kind of recommendations do you have for uh, a, a medical device company who's trying to select their site and they're weighing the options between these different things? And maybe the specific pain that I'm thinking about is I created a protocol. I'm going to send it to this. Maybe it's a local IRB and a central because I have, they're outside the scope. And so I'm doing multiple. I'm assuming that's maybe a situation that you run into. Um, what if I have a situation where I need to change the protocol? What are, you know, how, uh, halfway through the study, how does, how do those changes get disseminated across multiple sites? And, um, I don't know if you could just kind of elaborate on, on how to overcome certain specific challenges with a multi-site study. Yeah. That so that long that, question, Apologies. that happens, that happens all the time. Um, I prefer to utilize central IRB whenever possible. That's going to be the sites are going to get up and running usually faster. Um, we kind of use a two tier approach. Like these are the sites that are going to get up and running fast, but then we also want these, you know, academic sites that, you know, have this really big patient population and they're going to boost, you know, enrollment and things, but might take a little longer. So we get the ones up running faster that might be a little slower to recruit. And in the meantime, we're getting the ones that take longer started up and then you'll get a bolus of enrollment later. Um, so we kind of take that two prong approach. And then when it comes to protocol amendments and things like that changing in the middle of the study, like I said, you just submit to the central IRB and those sites get it done. And then we have site startup specialists and our CRAs also, if the site's already active, just going through and helping the sites with the local IRBs, making sure that they submit and get the new information um, up, you know, approved and up to date. Okay. Anything else about timelines and things like that that you would maybe recommend or not? It looked like you were going to say something, Isabella. So um, one thing about the the academic sites and KOLs too is um, sometimes you have a situation where they have this large patient population. You also sometimes have a situation where they're slow enrollers, right? So you may spend a year trying to get this site up and running and then a year getting two patients in and all the other sites are like, oh, I've got so many patients and, and they're kind of like hitting enrollment. And then they may only have like a, a handful of patients, um, but you still want that site because you have a KOL at that site. 
KOL still wants it because he runs a publication. And so there's this sort of symbiotic relationship there. So it, it still benefits you um, to have it because you want that KOL um, and he wants the publication. And so, you know, just be mindful that the site um, may be a slow enroller that, you know, just because it's a KOL doesn't mean that the site's going to enroll a whole bunch of patients. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, and so you really want, like Sam was saying, and kind of you were hinting at, um, that you really want a balance of, okay, I have these KOLs who, whose sites may take a really long time to get up and running because I got a local IRB and there's all this bureaucracy, getting contracting and all of this stuff in place. Um, and maybe they're a slow enroller or maybe they have a really great large patient population. But I also have these other sites that are not necessarily the KOLs, not necessarily the uh, academic institutions. They can go run through the central IRB and I can get them going really fast. Um, and if you really want to have patients that come from the sites that you know have these KOLs, just being mindful of not like exploding the patient population in one site. And that's part of that sort of diversity planning too, right? You don't want to have one site that is so so good at enrolling that they enroll the entire study and you don't have diversification throughout the the, the United States and, and the study, the sites and everything, because you don't want it to, if it's a multi-center study, you don't want it just at that one site. And FDA is not going to want to see that if they agree to a multi-center study. You, so you, you bring really up a, make sure that you're balancing it. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. I didn't, uh, you bring up a really good point, and that is kind of like diversifying your portfolio of, of uh, trials or investigations. Because ordinarily, I might think just as a maybe I'm a project manager or something, I might think, well, we just have to get through this investigation so we can get to the next one so that we can get to market. When in reality, it sounds like there's a little bit more of a bureaucracy, political side from the business side, the business standpoint. We've been util we've been utilizing these key opinion leaders. We've been utilizing these um, these specific sites for other relationships, and so you want to maintain that. And maybe that's going to help you even post market when when you're actually trying to get into the hospital and so forth, things like that. Is that accurate? That's accurate. Yeah, having um, KOL advocates is always beneficial. I mean. Um, you want to have those physician advocates out there for you at the sites um, and just like in the industry in general. Um, so, yeah, so, so you want to balance that out. Some of it is, like I was saying earlier, even if you're not going to use them in your study, you still want to maintain that relationship. Maybe use them in some other type of study. Maybe use them in a post-market study where it's a better fit. You really want to make sure that you have the good fit for the study. Um, and sometimes you go into that knowing, okay, this site's going to be a slow enroller. That's okay. I know that. You, but you really want to still make sure that they have all of the other things that they need to be able to conduct a study, right? They have adequate research staff. They have the facilities that they need. It's not going to be this, you know, major headache bringing them into the study. Um, and then you had asked about timeline, and I don't know if you just hinted on it now or thought you were going to. Um, to Sam's point, there's all these moving parts um, into getting the study started up. Um, I think there are so many different factors that go into the timelines that the, uh, the companies are, are thinking about. There's um, on their end funding, right? So they're like, I've got this protocol, but they don't have the funds to kick off the study. So that's one thing. So the timeline of funding, and that's really hard for them to predict, right? They may think that they're about to get um, the investor to sign. Maybe they signed an LOI, but then nope, 
the, the investor pulls out. You just don't, know, right? So funding is a hard thing um, to anticipate. So we usually what they'll do is think about the timelines outside of that. But you need to get all of your ducks in a row up to the point for the clinical trial. Automate if you have an I if you have to file an IDE with the FDA, you need to make sure that you're getting rolling on that, that you got everything that you need, that you file that IDE with the FDA. Um most cases you probably want to anticipate a little bit longer than that 30 day timeline. Um, however, we've had it approved within 30 days. Um, but so, th- so that's one part, but then all of the things that Sam was talking about, it, it depends on how many sites that you have that you need to start up to get this, the study really rolling, right? The types of sites that you're getting started up, um, how quickly they're able to enroll, how eager the sites are to be on the study. Um, and then the enrollment process throughout the trial too. So there's that startup chunk that we've been talking about that takes, I don't know, Sam, like three to six months on average, probably, right? Yeah, for central IRB sites, you know, eight, 12 weeks, three to six months. Um but for larger, you know, institutions, especially academic ones, it could take it could take six, eight months, sometimes even a year to get started just to get through all the processes. Okay. And that's that's, you know, and what we're hinting at, too, is like that's largely a part of picking the sites as well. Right. Yeah. So like, you need to understand those timelines because that's not something that we can necessarily control. It's within the site. Too. Yep. Um, so it's a balance of us engaging with the site. So if we were just like chilling and not doing anything, of course, it's going to take longer. But but it's also some things that are just outside of the sponsor's control, outside of the CRO's control. It's the site. Um, so that's one thing. But then as you move through the study, you like we were talking about, you got to pay attention to enrollment. Um, you got to pay attention to what the sites are doing. Um, because if you're not hitting your enrollment numbers, then your study is going to be dragged on for longer. So what Samantha was talking about before was if you close down a site because they're not enrolling. Um, and so you're paying them to keep the site open, but so but they're not enrolling. So you're just paying them to keep doing it, but you're not hitting any of those milestones that you need to hit. Um, so then you might need to start spin off another site, right? So then you have to go through the site selection if you haven't already selected those sites and the study startup, not study startup, site startup process again. Um, so you just are kind of viewing these things throughout the entire clinical trial. Um, so that can also impact the timeline if you have slow enrolling sites, if all of your sites are slow enrolling, or if you were banking on this one site's going to be my top enroller and they're just not hitting it, um, that can slow down your trial overall. Contrarily, if you have awesome sites that are all enrolling like crazy, um, your trial may finish earlier than you originally anticipated. So um, it's a lot of the the CRO working with the sites to manage how quickly they're enrolling and to manage all of the sites collectively for the study's enrollment overall. So managing, like we're saying, if the site's a slow enroller, do we close this site? Do we need to add a new site? Do we need to help them with enrollment, right? Do we need to get marketing out there? Do we need to reinvigorate their interest in this trial? Because sometimes what you'll see is a site's doing really great and they're they're enrolling and enrolling. And then all of a sudden they kind of like dip, right? Or they they start to dip. And it's maybe they're distracted with a competitive tool or something yeah. or something bright and shiny is distracting them now. Um it, particularly you see that with trials that have really long periods of time that they're ongoing. 
So stuff like that, you're always managing. I mean, that kind of goes in more to like the entire clinical trial management, but it it unpacks when you're starting up and maybe spinning off new sites or closing them down. Okay. All of ours. So we kind of talked a little bit strategy. I want to get one last tactical question in because I like focusing on the things that I can control. Um, and a lot of times I look at this, you know, we, we've done protocols on paper before, and I know there's other options now. What is the most technological way to do this, to have the most efficient process? Is there, are there any tools you recommend or things that you um, use to handle this, especially with multi, I- multi-sites? My favorite tool is having a 21 CFR compliant e-signature <laughs> system. And you would not believe how many people I just have, like, I get the blank stare, like, what's that? Um, so that's one red flag that we're going to have a little bit of trouble with the site. But after, you know, after the pandemic, we were forced to do so many things remotely. And it's just so much faster to be able to, you know, get a PI signature. You just send it through your system, it's signed, and then you email it right back to the CRO. And instead of having to physically take it to the PI's desk, and then we have to wait for them to rifle through all the papers and sign that one and then give it back to us. And then we have to fax it or, you know, scan it in and email it. It's just so much faster. The e-signature keeps things moving so fast um, that it, it's been amazing how much faster that is. And some sites, you know, they still, that that's a question we ask in feasibility, you know, do they have these systems in place or do they still use paper forms or paper um, medical records? Um, being able to do remote site visits, having an electronic medical record, um, those kind of things are revolutionizing the clinical trial world because it can be, not hands off in the sense that, you know, just letting things go, but, you know, it's saving the sponsor money for the CRA not have to travel to a site and, you know, and we, they can get a lot more done, you know, online for eight straight hours sitting, you know, at their desk. If we can do a remote site visit every now and then instead of of having, you know, take a whole day to travel to and from a site. So um, electronic systems are fabulous. So basically what you're saying, if I could sum up is a post, if in your site selection, part of the criteria is a post pandemic 21st century uh, <laughs> software that you're using something like that. Yes. It Are definitely... you tech savvy is the question. Yes. <laughs> it, it accelerates the timelines is what I'm saying. Very cool. Don't what an e-signature is. Um... Yes. <laughs> Excellent questions for that question that we're talking at the very beginning. Okay. Anything we missed? I know it's we, we need to wrap up, but I really appreciate you joining the conversation or carrying this conversation, presenting it for us. Anything we missed or you want to uh, last last little words you want to throw out there? Um, I do have one uh, back to your question about the OUS trials. Um, so usually what we'll see is sponsors um, do that as a first in human study, um, less expensive, et cetera. Um, First in human, sometimes that's okay because it's not your pivotal trial um, and your criteria for selection may be somewhat different. You're probably doing that more for investors than for regulatory. Sometimes you might be able to use it for regulatory. Um, I would say never plan on doing that for your pivotal trial, only OUS, um, at least. If you want to do a global trial, that's that's okay. But um, 
only OUS, what typically happens is FDA wants to see a U.S. population. Um, and particularly if you're going to a location that is not uh, diverse ethnically. Um, so if you're going to somewhere where regardless of whether it's, you know, all Caucasians or it's all um, Asian or whatever it might be, um, they won't typically accept that data. And it's really just a challenge to get um, them to agree that whatever, that the racial differences and the ethnic differences and, and the, not really gender, but those differences when you're moving OUS um, don't impact the the use of the device. Um, it's a lot easier to say no than it is to say yes. So um, I would just make it as easy for, or as hard for them to say no as possible and as easy for them to say yes as possible. Um, so just plan once you're getting into pivotal territory and maybe even pilot that you're, you're at least having some and a good number of U.S. sites if U.S. is your real first target market. I think that's good advice. Samantha, any any last piece of advice? Yes. Um, I read this somewhere. I don't remember where, but it, it's profound in its simplicity. You know, for a study startup, you really, Isabella was saying before, as much stuff in front as possible. So try to do it right so you don't have to do it again. Um, it's kind of the takeaway. We really strive to strive to, you know, get all our ducks in a row and select the best sites, you know, for all of the different reasons. Um, you know, so we're not closing and reopening, wasting time, wasting money, wasting effort. Um, so we really try to do it right so we don't have to do it again. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. We'll put links to their uh, LinkedIn as well as uh, other ways to get a hold of them, however they would like that, in the show notes. So definitely check out the show notes after. Samantha, Isabella, thank you so much for being on the show. We'll let you get back to the rest of your day. Thank you so much. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out and let us know either on LinkedIn or I'd personally love to hear from you via email. Uh, check us out. If you're interested in learning about our software built for MedTech, whether it's our document management system, our CAPA management system, the design controls risk management system, or our electronic data capture for clinical investigations, this is software built by MedTech professionals for MedTech professionals. You can check it out at www.greenlight.guru or check the show notes for a link. Thanks so much for stopping in. Lastly, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps others find us. It lets us know how we're doing. We appreciate any comments that you may have. Thank you so much. Take care.